Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before I begin, I want to remind you that there is a podcast associated with this website called wealthformula.com. It's where you go to pick up all the resources that you can't get just by listening or watching on YouTube. By the way, some of those uh, resources include lists that you should consider joining including our accredited investor club. That's where you get the deal flow, where you can put some of this information to work. Uh, you do need to be an accredited investor. So you go to wealthformula.com and you sign up for investor club. And at that point you go through an onboarding process and voila, you are part of a elite club of accredited investors that make up the wealth formula investor club. Now, as for today's show, it's funny, you know, I moved to Montecito a few years ago. Well, the gosh, it's not just a few years ago. Now it's um, it's like seven or eight years ago. That's what happens when you're getting older, right? It's like you're a few years ago, you know, and it's like, it turns out it's like 20 years ago or something like that. It was actually about seven or eight years ago. When I moved here, I was amazed at how many people didn't seem to work. And to be clear, we don't have a homeless problem out here. That's not what I mean. We just have a lot of people who own businesses. And while it's not really quite true that they don't work, they just don't have regular hours. So there's a disproportionate number of people. Well, they're just kind of hanging out during the day, maybe having lunch and, uh, you know, stuff like that, hanging out, playing golf, whatever. Of course, you know, I myself am a business owner and uh, my businesses have experienced their fair share of pain over the last several months. In fact, my cosmetic surgery business that I talked about, which I've been talking about for periodically for a while, well, it hasn't really done great without me since I left, but it finally, finally went out of business. Uh, after almost 15 years, not just not profitable anymore. So there it goes. There goes another business. And it's not just me. Everyone's slow. All these unemployed people that I keep talking about out here, uh, my uh, neighbors, these business owners, everyone's slow. Seems like more than often than not, what we're really talking about is laying people off. There's layoffs going on everywhere. Lots of skilled people are losing their jobs. So, you know, if you've been listening to this show, you have been listening to me trying to get to the bottom of this. I'm racking my brains out, trying to figure out why, despite all this, what I'm seeing out there and what we're experiencing, obviously, in the real estate space and all that, why the economy supposedly is doing so well. I've come to the conclusion, ultimately, 
that the reason for this is that we're just not looking at the right indicators for the time we live in, at least, you know? It's like we bought an electric car, like a Tesla or something, right? And we're still keeping an eye to make sure that we don't run out of gas or something like that, right? When we really should be paying attention to the battery charge indicators or whatever, you know, whatever you call that. We've always judged the economy, you know, traditionally up to this point with two major indicators. We've had jobs and the GDP and, you know, unemployment and all that kind of stuff, right? Those numbers haven't looked bad even after a year or more now of oppressive rate hikes, right? Hikes that invariably in any other part of American history have led to a deep recession. But what does that jobs report really tell us? That's the question. Is it telling us that many people left the workforce during COVID like they did and never came back? After all, you are only considered unemployed if you're actively trying to work. So it could just be, you know, unemployment levels low because, well, less people want to work, right? And when you see all those new jobs added to the jobs report every month, is that taking into the consideration that people need extra part-time jobs just to make ends meet? After all, those numbers that we get, they make no distinction of that at all. Bottom line is that I think my conclusion from all of this racking of my brain and trying to figure out why there's good news being reported and in the meantime, it feels like we're in some kind of a recession or in some bad times here is quite simple. I'm convinced we are just not looking in the right direction and we'll figure that out. It'll become very clear within the next 12 months. Anyway, I got that conclusion from my guest today on this uh, week's uh, episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, this is a guy, oddly enough, that I discovered. A friend of mine sent me a, a TikTok video of his, uh, which is hilarious because I think of TikTok as, you know, I don't know, it's something like the kids do, right? The kids do the TikTok thing. Anyway, this guy's uh, not only he's on TikTok, but he's He's an Austrian economist in a conservative think tank. I mean, oh, that's, that's a sign of the times, ladies and gentlemen. But he's on TikTok. And because of him, I now have a TikTok account. And you probably will too. Anyway, we will have this fantastic conversation with this uh, TikTok Austrian economist right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Peter St. Ange. He's an economist at Heritage, uh, which is a conservative think tank, and he also makes videos on a daily basis to educate people about the economy and about freedom. Peter, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for having me on. So, Peter, I was uh, just uh, telling you a little bit before we got online about how I learned about you, which is 
a friend of mine was watching uh, TikTok videos, and he's a very bright guy. Um, and this was a few months back. And of course, I don't, you know, I thought TikTok was just for kids. <laughs> and, and I he, did too. Yeah. <laughs> and he sent me this thing, and I'm like, wow, that's that's very interesting. And some of your commentary on on the economy, and we'll get get to how people can follow you on there in a minute. But um, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, uh, just to try to get some context on on some of your opinions. Sure. So I am an economist. I'm a former business school professor. Uh, the type of economics that I'm interested in is it's called Austrian economics, uh, which is really just classical economics. So right. economics is a field kind of took this this wrong turn around the 1930s and turned into this uh, basically government propaganda. So I'm interested in going back before that uh, to the classical era. And that means that a lot of the points of view I have tend to be very different uh, than mainstream. They also tend to be uh, a lot more correct than mainstream economics. Yeah. Uh, you know, after all, their main goal is keeping uh, the people who happy who pay their salaries. So most academic economists, for example, have to basically spout the government line. Uh, the vast majority of money in economics is going into people who will make apologies and sort of uh, gaslight on behalf of the regime. Uh, so I'm interested in sort of counter-programming on that, uh, giving people a sense of what they're trying to do to us, uh, how you can protect yourself. You know, broadly speaking, most of the narratives that people hear in economics uh, are sort of promoting the idea that the government, uh, regulators, politicians should be taking over your lives. And I react viscerally against that notion I actually, it's it's funny what you said about TikTok. When I first came on, I was sure that it was just a, <laughs> that it was just goofy, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. people showing off their dance moves and uh, trick camera shots and whatnot. Uh, I've actually been surprised a little bit. I think what happened is YouTube censored so aggressively that a lot of conservatives started going to TikTok uh, to find their content. So I've been surprised how many conservatives are on TikTok. TikTok as a company is a nightmare. They don't take down imposters. So, you know, sometimes I get messages where people are like, you're so nice on Twitter, but you're such a jerk on TikTok. And I'm like, it's probably not me on TikTok. <laughs> you know, people are trying to sell them on, you know, Bitcoin and crypto coins. And right, right, right. I'm a fan of Bitcoin, but certainly not the rest of it. So yeah, yeah, uh, TikTok yeah. is a bit of a mess. So Usually I spend my days over on Twitter where Elon uh, keeps a uh, cleaner house than TikTok does. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, one one thing that you mentioned is, uh, you know, conservative censorship and that kind of thing. The, the, the interesting thing to me is sort of, uh, maybe you can comment on this, but I mean, I've always kind of considered myself more of a libertarian uh, view-wise, but I, sort of more across the board, right? Like I, I mm -hmm. believe in personal liberties, and so I don't really want to get in yep. people's lives, and I don't really want to, you know, tell them, you know, who, who they can be with and and all all those other issues and then there's the uh, conservative uh economics is there such thing as true conservative economics in modern political uh, in the modern political system in the u.s yeah i mean if you wanted to put a specific name on it it'd probably be milton friedman so he was a big fan of minimist uh government not necessarily no government like sort of the ancap rothbardian point of view, but Friedman generally felt that governments were bad at doing pretty much everything. 
And so the government should be restricted to protection of property rights. So enforcement of contracts, you know, protection from violent crime and fraud. And beyond that, there's there's not a whole lot for the government to do. Maybe probably defense, you know, which really boils down to defending yourself from other even worse governments. There's a metaphor I really like, which is lions. Okay, so male lions are completely useless. They don't hunt. They don't do anything. They just sit around. They wait for the girls to kill stuff. And then the male lion, as soon as the girls kill something nice to eat, he gets up, he comes over, he snarls at them, chases them off, and he takes the the best bit of it. And then whatever's left, the girls can have, right? And this, for me, is really the metaphor of government, okay? It is useless. It is a parasite. But the male lion has one purpose in life. There's one reason the girls keep him around, which is that if he's not there, some other male lion is going to show up and he's going to eat up all the babies and he's going to make new babies. So the male lion is existentially important only because there are other male lions in the world. Yeah. So that's I think that's kind of my point of view. I think that's the conservative point of view is that government is a necessary evil, but we have to have it because there are other governments. There are also other violent people and we do indeed need to be protected from them. Yeah, I mean, I guess my point being that if you think of the Republican Party as being right. uh, the party of conservatives, it, it, but my issue there is that it sure doesn't seem like this has been a, a party of, of conservative economics, uh, certainly several decades. Yeah, yeah. every political party is tricky. It's sort of a permanent civil war between the voters of that party and the actual cronies of that party. So the politicians, the donors, the activists, the rest of them. And they are always at odds, right? So like the the typical Democrat voter uh, doesn't like corporatism. They don't like this bootlicking of big business. Not until very recently were they that excited about foreign wars. And similarly on the Republican side, you know, the voters and where the party is, is, there's a big gap between those. So the end result is that the Democrats and the Uh, Republicans in Washington often ask like a uniparty, like there's very little difference between them. You've got a little bit on the fringes. You might have the squad on the one side and the Freedom Caucus on the other side, but the vast majority of them in the center, they both want the exact same things, which is more government control over your life, both financial and every aspect of your life. And then, you know, really after that, it's just sort of negotiations, splitting up uh, the spoils, who gets the crumbs. And that's an uphill battle for a conservative think tank. Always. (laughs) It's, it, it is always tricky. Yes. Because we're located in Washington. We're the biggest conservative think tank in Washington. And the trick is that we're not, we're not fraternizing with the insane asylum inmates up in Washington, right? We're supposed to be keeping an eye on these jerks. And to a certain degree, you have to work with them. You know, you have to translate principle into policy, Doing that kind of work with actual Republican politicians is just, it's like an endless life of disappointment in these people. Like you have to constantly hold their feet to the fire. Well, let's move on to things that we can do probably more about, (laughs) or at least, you know, try to understand. (laughs) Again, going back to the specific TikTok video that I thought was really compelling. This was a few months ago now, though, but I'm sure things haven't really changed. In that video, I think you were talking about how uh, in effect, uh, on the one hand, uh, President Biden was talking about how the, the economy was, 
he was it was doing really well while he was eating an ice cream cone and 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 yes, talking about that. I remember but that. Yeah. on the other hand, uh, you were talking about the realities on, in terms of business bankruptcies um, right. and some of the parallels that you were seeing with some of the worst uh, times that we've seen in modern history in the economy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and uh, to the extent that uh, some of that data might be a little different now, but I, I would imagine it's fairly similar. Yeah, the trends are similar and we're in a funny spot in the economy where a lot of the data says that the economy is doing great. Right. Right. So there are two key pieces of data. One of them is GDP. The other one is jobs. And both of those are sort of being floated for artificial reasons. And when you kind of look under the surface and you see what's happening with things like like bankruptcies, uh, personal financial stress. So people who are struggling uh, people were taking on hardship loans. Uh, I saw a graph recently about, it was a Google Trends for searches on HELOCs, okay, which is, uh, it's it's been high for about a year, but HELOCs for financial reasons, I think the quote was, uh, that's like at an all-time high, right? So people are searching how to take their equity out. So you've got all these on-the-ground indicators that are very clearly flashing that we're coming into like a 2008-style recession and but the two headline numbers that are supposed to be happening at the same time right those are jobs and gdp those aren't agreeing now right. when you dig into those two numbers they're idiosyncratic reasons a lot of them have to do with the pandemic so during the pandemic the lockdowns about five million americans dropped out of the workforce so a lot of them retired early a lot of them also went on government benefits so during the pandemic they had all these weird rule changes that nothing whatsoever to do with uh, the disease, but one of them was um, they had sort of a no questions asked policy if you wanted to go on government assistance. And of course, once you go on that, uh, you tend not to come off, right? It sort of becomes this, this welfare trap. So anyway, we've got 5 million Americans out. If you added them back in, mm -hmm. okay, then you'd be looking at an unemployment rate of about six and a half to seven and a half percent, not the, what is it? Uh, four point it's like foreign change at this point. Yeah. Uh, it, it might not even be four. I mean, it's, 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 it's very low right now historically, but that's what those 5 million people pulled out. You've got a similar story with GDP. So well, just, well, just, well, well, just back up real quick yeah. on the jobs yeah. thing. One of the things why, uh, and, and, and I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is the thing that's completely mind boggling to me because, you know, I, I live in, uh, I live in Santa Barbara, California and specifically oh in, in Montecito. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the thing is a lot of my neighbors, Mine. Nobody works in Montecito. Okay, they 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 are they all own businesses. They basically own businesses, Got right? It. Okay. So I know what's going on at the level of the business owner. I think across the board, it 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 sure seems like I don't know a lot of people who are out there adding a bunch of workforce, right? I, I don't know yeah, a lot of people right. who are adding who right. are, are are planning on this big economy yet, right? When you look at the jobs numbers, as you described, not only from an unemployment standpoint, but jobs added per month, which yeah. is, again, what we keep hearing in the headlines, it's mind-boggling to me. I don't understand it. I don't know who's adding jobs when, like, some of the biggest companies that I know of around even some of my colleagues are involved with, they're laying yeah. people off left and right, techs laying people off left yeah. and right. Where are yeah. the jobs coming from then? Yeah. So part of that is uh, labor hoarding. So, you know, we had this terrible labor shortage during the lockdowns, especially for blue collars, because it, it paid better to sit on the couch. 
Right. And, you know, that's that's a big reason why voters were were down with the lockdowns in the first place is, you know, if yeah. somebody's going to give you a raise to sit on the couch, then, yeah, you're going to play along that this is the end of the world. So that's been part of it. And then the other part of it is just that in the way that government counts jobs, second jobs and certain types of part time jobs show up as a full job. So what you've got at this point is a lot of people who for financial reasons, they're taking on second jobs or they're doing DoorDash or Uber or something like that. That shows up in the government statistics as jobs created. But in a sense, that's that's almost a negative. Yeah. Like people are 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 taking that extra, you know, um, because they can't make ends meet. So normally when you see a job created, you think this is fantastic. This is great for the economy. Usually it is. But it, it, once you pass a certain percent of part-time jobs, a certain amount of part-time jobs that people want because they're in college or they're taking care of kids sure. or, you know, maybe they're they're in their 50s, they're semi-retired, they just want to do a couple of weeks to go out and meet people. But there, there's like some relatively constant percent of jobs that are, people are choosing them because they want to have them. Once you've risen beyond that level, that's not actually a job like that's not a good thing. That's keeping up with inflation, right? Right. That, that's, that's a good, exactly that's trying it. to, trying, trying to make ends meet. Now, how do you, does the, does the data give you a certain kind of breakdown that where you can see that as, as a, you know, that as mm -hmm. a trend? Yeah. I've got a couple of recent videos just going through the unemployment numbers month by month. And yes, that is a soaring trend now for those part-time jobs for economic reasons, quote unquote, they give surveys. Uh, they ask people why they're working part-time. Uh, and then also for the uh, second jobs. So, you know, people have literally two full-time jobs. What about government jobs versus private sector? Yep. What's That's the difference there? Yeah. Is that a, a big part of it as well? Uh, it is in more recent numbers. So the last jobs uh, report, for example, about a third of the jobs created, which, which by the way, were pretty lousy numbers, about 150,000 jobs, which yeah. given the size of the country and the population growth, that's effectively zero to negative. But even there, a third of those jobs were government workers and government workers, of course, produce absolutely nothing. Sure. It's possible that like, like the first 20,000 employees maybe at the federal level might be creating something you could argue. But beyond that, it's basically just more parasites who, of course, their salaries have to be paid by, right. the, by the remaining jobs. Almost all of the rest of it was um, low paid home health care, education jobs, which are really just government jobs you know, to warehouse children and such. The actual number of like bona fide private sector, nothing to do with government jobs were about 10,000. Even that was overwhelmed by leisure and hospitality, uh, which is relatively low paid. In the old days, we called those mic jobs. Meanwhile, people who are actually making things, so manufacturing, IT, uh, transportation, trucking, all of those actually went down. Trucking in particular is a big bellwether for the economy. Right. Because if people aren't shipping stuff, then that that's, you know, almost a perfect uh, correlation with incoming recession. So the jobs picture says that recession is definitely coming. And, you know, if we if we exclude the pandemic era effects, then we're, we're looking at six and a half, seven and a half. That's almost precisely where it was right before the 2008 crisis. Let's talk about uh, the other element here. We're talking about the big number that people refer to when they're looking at this economy. So, gosh, 5% GDP growth, right? Yeah, that's um, exactly right. I mean, what are we, China? I mean, what, what's going on yeah. here? Like, so it sure doesn't feel like that again with with regard yeah. to what I'm hearing uh, from my neighbors who own these businesses. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, again, that's basically artificially boosted. You've got these uh, enormous government deficits. So they're on track now to $2 trillion is what they're projecting for, really, I think, for about the next decade. So, I mean, that's, that's really just a permanent stream of new money coming in. So that boosts GDP. The other one is household debt. A fresh numbers just came out. They hit a new 17.3 trillion. That's a record in household debt. It's going up in everything, credit cards, car loans. It's actually going up in mortgages, uh, which, you know, despite the <laughs> incredible mortgage rates at the moment. Yeah. Um, so debt is going up across the board. And so that, you know, people often use GDP as a shorthand for are we getting rich? Right. So like if, if GDP, go, if GDP goes up, then we must be getting richer. And the thing is GDP is emphatically not wealth, right? GDP is activity. So for example, if a hurricane comes and wipes out LA and you have to rebuild LA, the rebuilding is going to show up as GDP. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but like, that doesn't mean that you should, you know, create hurricanes to destroy cities so that you can boost GDP. Okay. GDP is only measuring activity. And GDP is agnostic as to whether that's good activity or bad activity. You know, so if if they improve the government statistics so they could count home robbery, that would, strictly speaking, be GDP. It is labor. Right. It is going into some activity. That activity then generates revenue for the, yeah. <laughs> for, yeah. for the service provider. Uh, and so in this context, when you've got all that debt flooding out, when you've got all these parasitic government workers being employed, it shows up as GDP. It, like a lot of people are quite busy. They're, they're responding to, you know, whatever the credit card debt uh, is buying uh, restaurant meals or something, but we are running down our national wealth. And that is, is, is really what's going to matter for the future. Now that's intentional, right? I mean, there's, there's a reason governments do actually publish statistics on wealth. So like the federal reserve, for example, looks through every month and they tally up uh, what they think household debt is. But for whatever reason, one can speculate, um, the media does not report that. And of course, the reason is because almost everything government does reduces national wealth. Many of the things government do can um, can increase GDP, right? They can keep people busy. They could take a trillion dollars from you. They could pay people to knock down highway overpasses and rebuild them. That would generate GDP, but obviously that would destroy wealth. So that's really the economy awareness that we've got this enormous amount of debt that is generating these sort of fake GDP numbers. We've got all these people out of the workforce along with shenanigans on how they're counting unemployed, how they're counting jobs. You put those two together and the two key numbers that are allegedly holding the economy up they're both kind of smoke and mirrors. And then when you zoom down and you look at the on the ground stuff, so as you say, business owners, you know, you look at uh, what percent of households are struggling to pay their bills, uh, percent of people buying groceries on credit cards, <clears throat> i.e. Yeah. floating credit card debt uh, every month in order to pay their grocery bills. Those kinds of things are skyrocketing. And, you know, you're, you're seeing it um, on TikTok, on Twitter, you're seeing it across the internet where you've got all these millennials and they talk about how the lifestyle that they grew up in, right? They grew up in a three, four bedroom house. Uh, they had two parents who owned the house. Okay. In a middle-class neighborhood. And now these people, they're like 35, 40, they're living with roommates. They're eating instant ramen. That lifestyle is like, you know, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's just unimaginable for them. It's like some fairy tale that they read about in books. And that's the lifestyle they grew up in. So they do not have a sense of humor about what's happening right now. 
Tell me about the, you know, I, again, going back to the video, I remember you talking about the statistics on bankruptcies, uh, corporate ba uh, bankruptcies. Is that, um, what was happening then? Is that still, is that still an issue? Yeah, that's still going on. Uh, they're up about, I think, 30%. There was a temporary dip during COVID. So for a couple of reasons, bankruptcy proceedings were generally halted because of the pandemic. Uh, and also just the enormous flood of money the PPP loans really yeah. bailed out a lot of crappy businesses that yeah, they were on the road sure to bankruptcy. I mean, they yeah. had, it, it was no questions asked, right? They just handed that out uh, because they had to buy their lockdowns. But um, so yeah, the, the bankruptcy numbers actually during the pandemic, they were shockingly low considering that they had just shut down half the economy. So they're coming off a low base uh, at this point. I think we're looking about 30% year on year. They're still not historically real high yet. But bankruptcies tend to be a lagging indicator. So when you get a recession, those don't jump all in the beginning. They tend to sort of um, come over a couple of years. By the way, bank runs also do the same thing, interestingly, uh, historically. So like in 2008, it sparked off with a bank run. But then if you look at the mm -hmm. list of the bank runs, it's just this long tail that goes on for about two years. But yeah, so bankruptcies are rising. We wouldn't really expect them to be soaring quite yet. Uh, so I think we can expect a lot more of that to come. And sort of the bigger picture here is that in every recession, I mean, really in every recession, but certainly we've been able to see it clearly in the past couple of recessions. What's happened is that they made money too cheap in the beginning. This is what the Fed does for a living. It tries to make money too cheap so that, you know, it can uh, create more money, uh, create inflation that cheap money causes a tissue fire. So the economy grows real fast in the beginning. Uh, and then, you know, that leads to inflation, they hike rates, hiking rates then causes a whole bunch of businesses to go bust at once. So that's, that's sort of the standard pattern that really that we've had for a hundred years ever since the Fed existed. And we're very much at the stage now where the interest rates have been hiked in response to the inflation. Okay, so I mean, we, we are just playing the perfect playbook. But the thing is that the amount by uh, that interest rates were hiked this time, it was more extreme than anything since the 1970s. Uh -huh. right? You really have to go to, back to Paul Volcker, who hiked rates to 18, 19% <clears throat> right. uh, to get something more extreme than what we're in now. And so it yeah. would be shocking if we didn't get what we always get when you know central banks do that, which is this huge wave of bankruptcies that then leads into the joblessness. But the thing is that that tends to happen at about the middle of the recession. Maybe we jump ahead to that then in terms of yeah. timelines. You've hit on a lot of uh, these issues that as, as sort of prognosticators of things to come, right? But right. tell us how that delayed effect works and historically on when you when you've seen some of these things happen, how much longer do we have, so to speak, before any kind of uh, wave of, of recessionary activity or other kinds of uh, uh, issues? Yeah, so that's one of the big questions right now. And historically, there's about a 12 to 18 month lag between when the Fed hikes rates and when it actually impacts businesses and uh, actually businesses and consumers. And the reason is because people tend to already have debt, like they have credit lines from their banks or, yeah. you know, they've, they've got um, money that they already raised. So they kind of have to work through the cheap debt first, the leftover debt. So that's typically about 12 to 18 months. And the question at the moment is whether the speed of the hike or the level of the hike is more important. So 
They started raising rates uh, a bit over a year ago, but rates didn't really get to restrictive levels until just a couple months ago. So yeah. historically, restrictive levels is something like five percent or so, and we didn't we didn't cross that until just a couple uh, Fed meetings ago. And so the question is, do you start that twelve to eighteen month timer when they started bringing rates up, or do you start it, you know, once they hit four and a half, five, five and a half percent that they haven't hit five so, and a half. So yet. that that's actually a very interesting concept. I never it hadn't occurred to me to think of it that way, that while we were raising rates, money was still really right. dirt cheap for a long, yep. for a decent period of that time. Now, granted, yeah. it's all happened over the course of a year. So we're not, you know, we're not talking about a, a, the difference of years or anything like that, but a matter right. of months, right? Um, at what point can you comment on that? You know what that historical the idea behind that number that you hit when you kind of really start slowing the economy down. What is it? What is that based on? What exactly is that number and and why? Yeah, so it, it's it's not a precise number. It's a little bit different uh, every recession, partly because the Fed the Fed looks at uh, historical recessions and they're always trying to stay one side you know, one, one step behind it because yeah. they know that they can set off the next recession. So they're always just trying to stay just below that level. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always sort of trial and error. What exactly the level is that general pattern that, you know, you've got to delay on it. They call it a policy lag. So the fed is very aware uh, of how it works and they're aware of the, they're, they're aware of the mechanism, right? Which is that once you start making credit uh, more expensive, what will typically happen is, you've got a bunch of different businesses in the economy that are running at different levels of profitability uh, in sort of layman terms. There are good businesses and bad businesses and yeah. the good ones are going to survive no matter what the bad ones only really survived because money was so cheap to begin with. So in Austrian economics, those are called malinvestments. They're businesses that really never should have been funded in the first place. But you know, I mean, if you take it a couple of years ago, yeah. Uh, you could, for example, get a 3% mortgage at a time when inflation was running about 8%. You were, that was negative 5% money. Right. I mean, that was insane. Right. 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 And, yeah. and, and, you know, for, for businesses, it wasn't that far off. Right. So the, the prime rate was literally negative. You were being paid to borrow money. So you would expect that that would fund a whole bunch of crappy businesses mm -hmm. of malinvestments. And once you raise, rates, you then you start sort of taking out the weakest first, partly the weakest, partly the ones who, you know, didn't sort of store in enough cheap money uh, when the sun was shining. And, you know, you sort of work up that taking out the deadwood first and then progressively moving up. Now, in theory, you could raise rates to 20, 30 percent and you could even take out the strong businesses. That's almost certainly not going to happen. But anyway, you start sort of uh, taking the hindmost. Now, one of the questions in there that um, I think nobody knows the answer to this. One of the questions is that did the lockdowns themselves, did they knock out a whole bunch of deadwood? Right. So a bunch of the malinvestments, because remember, we've had near zero interest rates almost all the way back to 2008. So that would have saved up a bunch of garbage businesses. And in fact, when Trump came in, the economy was starting to slow and then Trump gave it this the second win. So, you know, people back in 2015, 16, were talking about incoming recession. Uh, it was about time, right? It had been about eight years since sure. the previous one. Sure. Uh, and, you know, Trump gave a second wind. He cut corporate tax rates, which were really, I mean, that's just an enormous um, boost. 
Uh, and then, and then of course, COVID came along. And so the question is, did, did the lockdowns actually take out a lot of that deadwood so that, and, and, and if that's true, then it would mean that even as bad as Biden is and Biden does, I mean, it, you know, terrible policies, we've certainly seen worse in this country, but he does have pretty awful policies. Um, but if that deadwood was already taken out during the lockdowns then it's possible to get a soft landing not because Biden is amazing, but because they already killed a bunch of the businesses in that previous round. Right, right. So otherwise, we're um, I guess if you if you look at this, um, you know, from any perspective, you know, twelve to eighteen months. I mean, it's it's been what it's been twelve months since they started the the process. Yeah, right. But but uh, somewhere in the next you know six months to you know another uh, twelve months or so that we should we would probably right. some see some recessionary activity. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think that's the most likely time frame. Uh, some of it is going to um, also be a question of how much debt people can still borrow. So if households are still able to get more money from banks, you know, normally at this stage of the cycle, banks are reigning in credit. There's differing statistics on that. There's actually a number of statistics saying that banks are not reigning in, uh, which is odd for this stage <laughs> of a cycle. It's possible that that is because of the aggressive reaction to the bank failures earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, there was a very strong signal out of Washington that we will bail out all of your gambling losses. And, you know, if banks are counting on that, then they may actually not rein in credit uh, this time around, which means that they could keep floating people until they absolutely get submerged in debt. Yeah. I guess one last uh, topic to hit on, and, and it's relevant uh, to, you know, the, the real estate space, which is, you know, especially I'm, we're primarily my, my group is primarily in multifamily and we've seen a fair amount of distress too, but not nearly as yep. much as say like the office, you know, the complete catastrophe of that. Now what's interesting to me about that is that a lot of that debt is, is sitting with regional banks. Right. Yep. And so I'm quite amazed that we have not seen more regional bank failures based on this, do you have yeah. any sense of why that is? Or, you know, if that's something that we could potentially see coming up in the future? Yeah, I think um, everything you're saying is correct. I think the main reason for that is exactly what we were talking about before there, where their response to Silicon Valley and then what was the signature? There were a couple of banks that fell in a cluster. Their response was so aggressive, you know, to essentially guarantee everything. So they, they sort of expanded FDIC without limit. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, FDIC is the the coverage is something like a hundred billion on twenty one trillion. It's just goofy. Uh, that's that's one. You know um, that I think that's about two percent cover. Uh, so they expanded the FDIC enormously. Um, they had the BTFP, uh, which you know is kind of making sweetheart loans to banks. They've got the um, the FHA banks that have basically turned into uh, bailout. Uh, mechanisms. I mean, really all of Washington, you know, back in 2008, they had to fight for the bailouts and they fought dirty, but anyway, they had to fight for them this time. It was just like bankers. They didn't have to do a thing. They just sat back there and let their shoes get polished mm -hmm. by uh, Janet Yellen. So um, yeah, I, you know, I think that a lot of normally you would expect those banks to go under what they're doing effectively is turning the banking system into a convoy system now where nobody goes down unless everybody goes down. 
And so eventually they are going to be too big to fail. This is what happened in Switzerland, for example. So Switzerland folded their second biggest bank, Credit Suisse, into UBS. And now at this point, the Swiss government is talking about changing the laws to lock depositors into banks. Okay, like this is not your father's Switzerland anymore. Um, But they have to do that now because all of their eggs are in one basket. So I think that's where uh, we're going with this as well. But, you know, if if market forces were allowed to operate, then, yes, the regionals are very exposed to commercial real estate. CRA is in a world of pain. You know, partly it's just a standard cyclical industry. So, you know, yeah. when rates rise, when rates fall. Uh, but then you've got these sort of uh, extra factors laid on. So the the work from home revolution. Uh, the bigger one is just the, you know, epic misgovernance of major cities in the U.S., where a lot of these places, I mean, nobody wants to live there. You know, you've got these (laughs) extreme prices per square foot in like San Francisco and it's it's just sitting there empty. I suppose everybody's figuring that like, you know, it'll be transitory and at some point San Francisco will have a prudent government who will fix it all, which I think they'll be waiting some time for that. But yeah, all that is going to generate enormous losses that then drives the banks to pull out of treasuries. You can get this kind of um, chain effect where you know, you squeeze one part of the balloon and then the other part pops out. Uh, So, you know, I think sort of the meta concern for the next couple of years here uh, is that we have this enormous debt fueled economy. In many ways, we're looking at a kind of 1970s scenario here. So, you know, we've got the high inflation, we've got the stagnation to go with it. In fact, we've got the crumbling cities on top of that, just like the 1970s. War in the uh, Middle East. That is, yeah, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, know you forgot yeah, we got the Middle East. We got the oil, <laughs> right? It's like, they're just recycling the <laughs> yeah, script. It's right. like you know, it's like a Disney remake at this right, point, right? Right. Um, but yeah, so and and so the question at this point is, you know, all of these things tend to reinforce each other. Um, not least because sort of the government hoovers in, you know, as the white knight to save all these things, pouring in a hundred billion there, 20 billion there, trillion and a half there soon enough, it adds up to real money. And so I think that the, uh, most likely break or, um, weakest link in this is going to be sovereign debt, that there's going to be concerns about whether government, uh, can actually pay back its loans or whether it's going to try to do it, uh, with inflation, But of course, the caveat there is that if we look at the last financial crisis we had, 2008, when it first broke, okay, you could pick up the Wall Street Journal and Barron's Magazine. These are the in-house magazines for Wall Street. And you could find all these explainers, like what is a a CDO? What is an MBS? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the reason is because nobody on Wall Street knew what these things were. Right? Like uh, if you've seen the movie, The Big Short. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, And... and he's going around trying to shop these <laughs> things. All these Wall Street them, yeah. guys are like, I don't know. What do you think we should charge them? A dime, a quarter? Okay, these guys, they had zero familiarity with these things that ended up breaking the market. So what's a little bit scary to me is that our financial system, the amount of debt we have floating in there is much bigger than it was in 2008. It is intentionally opaque to deceive regulators. The Wall Street guys have like 30 points of IQ over the regulator. If by some freak of nature, the SEC happens to hire a smart person, Goldman Sachs is going to sit down with them and talk about their future career prospects. All right. They are completely outgunned. So what what worries me is to imagine all of the ghosts in the machine, right? All the gremlins that are hiding in that hundred trillion dollar Ponzi uh, of debt. And I think that 
you know, a lot of eyes are on sovereign debt, like on treasury auctions and things like this. I think honestly, it could be something that none of us have ever heard of that we're all going to get an explainer next time. Yeah. Good stuff. So Peter, um, this is a uh, fascinating conversation and I'm sure a lot of people would love to to follow you and listen to you uh, wherever you're spreading your education here. And some of it's on TikTok. And some people, knowing my audience, who's probably mostly like, you know, 50 year old guys are like, TikTok, what's TikTok? I thought my daughter was on TikTok, right? But tell us about the different ways that we can um, kind of get a hold of your content. Yeah, I post them every day on Twitter or X as it's now called. Yeah. Uh, so I'm at, at uh, Prof St. Ange, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E, just like this thing over here. Uh, and then I also put them up on YouTube and I've got a website, petersanange.com. We do podcasts, we do uh, weekly articles that kind of go more in depth on what's going on with the economy and with freedom. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we mostly have a, this is a largely a listening audience. So this will be an interesting uh, uh, conversion. I, I would highly recommend people uh, go over to uh, Peter's channels there and check it out. And thanks again so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Buck. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. You know, this interview, I thought, was really good because to me, it answered, it kind of answered some of the questions that I've actually had for some time, specifically about this, you know, why in the world it seems like the economy seems to be reporting well when no one feels like it's actually doing well. And hopefully, hopefully it's clarified some things for you. But the other message that I got is that, uh, and I thought was interesting, was the fact that, you know, maybe rates were just so low that the impact of rates really didn't even matter that much until money was no longer cheap, which was sort of midway through the rate raising process. And therefore, maybe the true measure of when that recession happens is yet to come in the next 12 months. So, Makes a lot of sense. Hope you enjoyed the show. I actually thought it was a, a really interesting one myself. That's it for me uh, this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.